They say love is the magician that pulls man out of his own hat. These words could never be more true as love can make everyone come out of their shell and do things that they wouldn't normally do. It can be a positive change in many, but for some, you may not like who comes out of that hat. We all know that love can be blinding, causing you to do things you know are not right. Such was the case for Charles Starkweather, who found himself in a desperate situation. He was desperate to marry his 14-year-old girlfriend, desperate to make money, and desperate to get out of the Nebraska town where he was labeled a loser. This desperation led Starkweather and his girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, on a murdering spree that shocked the nation killing 11 in just a little over a month. What could cause two young lovers to take a deadly turn? Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. A link to today's show notes can be found in the description. Stay up to date with the latest happenings and more by visiting my Patreon or Buy Me a Coffee page. I don't know if I should get rid of one, so if you have an opinion, let me know, because I am a very indecisive person. <laughs> I am currently working on a behind-the-scenes video to upload on both of these platforms. I should be done fixing and editing it up in the next couple of days, so everyone should definitely check that out. Also, check out the Tamsin Lee shop. There are many items to find for everyone. I just uploaded some cute designs for cell phone cases, so if you or someone you know is looking for a new cell phone case, check it out. Today's case is the third episode in the Couples Who Slay Valentine's Day countdown and brings us to Lincoln, Nebraska, where Charles Raymond Starkweather and his underage girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, went on a murdering spree in 1958, leaving many deaths in their wake. A tale that was destined to end in tragedy. To this day, their story lives on in media and has been the inspiration for many shows and movies. But Carol's culpability in these murders still remains a mystery. Charles Starkweather was born on November 24, 1938 to Guy and Helen Starkweather. He was the third of seven children, raised in a poor, uneducated, but hardworking family. He and his siblings were born and raised during the Great Depression, but their parents never let them go without food or shelter. While the Starkweather family was poor, the children still had a good childhood and made great memories together. In their community, the Starkweather children were even considered well-behaved. Their father, Guy, was described as a handsome and talkative man who would have been better suited for white-collar work rather than working in the carpenter's trade. William Allen stated that Guy didn't have the necessary stamina and because of various ailments, including a weak back and arthritis, he did not work regularly. Helen was described as a small, frizzy, red-headed woman who was strong and kind. The matriarch held things together and worked as a waitress to help support the family's income. 
Charles's childhood memories with his family were great, but the same could not be said about his school experiences, which were quite traumatic for him. Charles had a slight speech impediment, which the other kids laughed at, and they would tease him about his bowed legs. He was born with a mild birth defect called genu verum, which caused his legs to be misshapen. While in school, Charles never applied himself and was considered to be a slow learner. But when he was 15, it was discovered that he suffered from a severe myopia, which many suspected was the cause of his problems with learning in school. His case of myopia was so severe that he could not even read the largest letter on the eye chart. While he did not do well in many subjects, he excelled when it came to gym class due to his strength and coordination. His self-esteem was boosted by this physical ability. However, he would use these abilities to continuously fight with other boys in school. Charles would blame all of his fights on being made fun of as a child. Some of the fights were brief outbursts of violence, while other times the fights would not end until they were either broken up or the other boy lay on the ground. The constant fighting earned him the reputation for being one of the meanest, toughest kids in Lincoln. While in ninth grade, he met and fought with a classmate named Bob Von Bush, who became one of Charles's closest friends. Bob stated, he could be the kindest person you've ever seen. He'd do anything for you if he liked you. He was a hell of a lot of fun to be around, too. Everything was just one big joke to him. But he had this other side. He could be mean as hell, cruel. If he saw some poor guy on the street who was bigger than he was, better looking or better dressed, he'd try to take the poor bastard down to his size. Charles and Bob were obsessed with James Dean and had seen all of his movies. Of course, Charles tried to imitate Dean's mannerisms, clothes, and hairstyle, along with his signature tight jeans and cowboy boots. But from his description, he was a flawed imitation, as he did not have Dean's looks, brains, or talent. The only relatable thing Charles had regarding James Dean was his isolation and rebellion. Charles also grew an obsession with hunting and guns. It was also around this time that he began having terrifying nightmares and vivid, bizarre hallucinations, during which he would claim that he would be conversing with death. Charles quit school when he was 16 years old and began working at the Western Newspaper Union warehouse, loading and unloading trucks. While he worked there, his boss had a very low opinion of Charles, stating that he would have to tell him something two or three times and that of all their employees in the warehouse, he thought Charles was the dumbest man there. It was also at around this time that his parents and family allegedly became afraid of him because of his violent outbursts. But Charles 
felt trapped in repeating the same menial life as his parents in a low social position and poverty. He believed he would never be able to escape, that his life was controlled, and that he would eventually find himself a manual job, find a wife, have children, and then just die. Charles met Carol Ann Fugate in 1956 when his friend Bob began dating her older sister, Barbara. Even though Carol had just turned 13, Charles became smitten with her and the four would often go on double dates. Carol was described as a very pretty girl with dark brown hair who always wore a smile. Much like Charles, she had a rebellious nature as well as an unpredictable temper. Her rebellious attitude and temper probably contributed to her poor grades, even failing a grade in elementary school. Her teachers would state that Carol was a slow learner, but Charles thought she was intelligent and treated her like she was a princess. He thought very highly of his girlfriend and fell deeply in love with her. He once stated that without her, he would be thrust back into the world he hated so much. Carol had a positive impact on his life, with her almost making him stop hating himself. He was starting to see himself through her eyes. But really, at this point, it was either he fell deeply in love with her or he became obsessed with her because really, it just kind of seems like he becomes obsessed with things. Most likely due to her young age, Carol thought Charles was very cool. She was impressed by his cars, his ruggedness, and his looks. Although he came from a poor family, she was in awe that he was able to give her almost anything she wanted. The Western Newspaper Union warehouse was located near the school Carol attended, so Charles was able to see her every day. Even though Carol was too young to drive legally, Charles taught her. He even allowed Carol to take his hot rod for a spin. One day she got into a minor accident while driving his car. This made Charles' father very upset because he was part owner of the car and he had to pay for the damages to the other vehicle. This of course was very difficult as the Starkweather family did not have a lot of money. The accident caused a huge fight to break out between Charles and his father, which eventually became physical. After this, he was told he had to find somewhere else to live. For a while, Charles moved in with his friend Bob and his now wife, Barbara. His life became entirely centered around Carol. He started telling people that he and Carol were going to get married. And when that wasn't enough, he started telling his friends that Carol was pregnant with his child. It was a lie that blew up in his face when word got back to Carol's parents. With Carol the apple of his eye, Charles started thinking about how he would make enough money to support himself and Carol. He quit his job at the newspaper warehouse and became a garbage man. The pay wasn't great as he only made $42 per week in 1957, which is roughly $458.48 today. It was barely enough to support himself, let alone Carol. As a garbage man, he saw the middle and upper class neighborhoods of Lincoln, Nebraska, and he could plainly see 
what he was missing out on. This is when Charles started to see himself as trapped in the continuous cycle of poverty. His intellect was very limited, and he had already dropped out of school by this point. To him, the only way out of this desperate situation was to do something very dramatic, like robbing a bank. But he also grew bitter at the fact that these people were able to live a life of middle and upper class while he was working an unpleasant job for minimum wage. Charles knew that there was one way to level the playing field. After all, dead people are all on the same level. With very few prospects for an uneducated garbage man, Charles eventually convinced himself that to survive, have money, and receive the respect he desired, he would need to lead a life of crime. This sentiment was further engraved in his mind when on November 30th, 1957, he wanted to buy a stuffed toy dog for Carol at the gas station, but he didn't have enough money. The clerk, Robert Colvert, didn't make matters better, as he refused to let Charles purchase the toy on credit, which embarrassed him. Angry and bitter, he knew he was going to get back at the people who alienated him his whole life. Charles decided it was time to start getting even with the people who always looked down on him on December 1st, 1957. At about 3 in the morning, he drove to the gas station where he was refused a credit. With him, he had a 12-gauge shotgun, which he lifted from his friend's cousin. It just so happened that the 21-year-old gas station clerk from the day before was on duty by himself. Robert Colvert, a short man with a pregnant wife, was working on a carburetor when Charles came in. He sold a pack of Camel cigarettes to Charles, who then got back in his vehicle and drove away. A few minutes later, Charles went back to the gas station, where Robert was still standing behind the counter. Charles bought a pack of gum, then went back to his car and drove off again, parking close by. Here, he put on a disguise, tying a bandana around his head to cover most of his face and putting on a hunter's hat to cover his red hair. Charles then walked back to the gas station with the shotgun and a bag. When he returned, Robert was working on the car again and did not know someone had come into the store until he felt the shotgun jab him in the back. Charles forced the clerk with the gun against his back to the office and had him open the cash drawer. He hurriedly placed the money in the bag and then ordered Robert to open the safe. But Robert didn't have the combination to it and told the robber that the only person who knew the combination was the boss. Charles accepted the explanation and made out with $100. But then Charles came up with something else. He decided he was going to take Robert for a ride, making him drive to Bloody Mary's house. So there was this crazy old woman in the neighborhood who would shoot a shotgun full of rock salt at people who trespassed on her property. Once they were there, he and Robert got out of the car, 
According to Charles, Robert tried to get the shotgun from him and was shot during the struggle. But then Robert tried to get back up on his hands and knees. So Charles shot him again, but this time he shot him in the skull. In this area of Lincoln, there were very few serious crimes during this time. So the press sensationalized the murder and robbery, making it a top story. Authorities initially had no leads as to who would have murdered Robert Colvert and believed that the robbery and murder were committed by a criminal who was just passing through. Charles decided that he needed to take extra precautions after the murder and robbery, just in case anyone was able to identify his car as being at the scene or anything else. So he painted his car a different color, but that did not stop him from allegedly doing some pretty dumb things that called attention to himself as a suspect. It was reported that most of the stolen money from the gas station was in change. And Charles would go purchase clothing for himself with this change. While that might not seem that odd back then, he was also known for not having a lot of money, and now all of a sudden, he just can randomly buy himself clothes. It would look suspicious. But still, even though it was a coincidence, authorities believe the culprit was someone else. But the murder of Robert provided Charles with an indescribable feeling. He wasn't bothered by taking someone else's life and getting away with it. It made him feel powerful. He believed that he could do as he pleased, take what he wanted, and live outside the law. After committing the crime, the next day, Charles admitted to Carol that he held up the gas station, but denied killing Robert, claiming that it was someone else. He later stated that Carol was not fooled by this and claimed this created a bond between them that sealed their fate. But this feeling of euphoria would only last for so long before some dark realities started to creep in. Charles was fired from his job and he was locked out of his house. Worse yet, his family and Carol's family were entirely against their relationship and went out of their way to do any and everything to break them up. He was becoming even more desperate. Charles drove over to Carol's house on the afternoon of January 21st, 1958. When he arrived, he brandished a 22 rifle and headed to the back door where he knocked. Velda Bartlett, Carol's mother, answered the door. Charles claimed that his sole purpose for visiting Carol's parents was to repair their relationship. He brought the rifle and ammunition, hoping to go hunting with Carol's stepfather, Marion Bartlett, and also stated that he had brought two discarded carpet samples he had found for Velda. Marion and Velda were in the home with their two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Betty Jean, who was crying. According to Charles, Velda told him that she and her husband did not want him seeing Carol anymore. A loud argument ensued 
with Charles claiming that Velda hit him a few times. He further stated that he left the house without the rifle and drove around for a while before coming back to the house to get the gun. Allegedly, this is when Marion kicked him out the door. According to Charles, he then went to a payphone to call Marion's work, telling them that he was ill and would not be at work for a few days. He then went back to Carol's home and waited for Carol to return from school. When she came home, he told her about the argument he had with her parents. She then allegedly went into the house and began arguing with her mother, with Charles following her into the home. This is all Charles Starkweather's account of the events. I will come back to this with Carol's account. When Charles entered the home, Velta started hitting him again as she yelled that he made Carol pregnant. He hit Velda and a struggle ensued for a few minutes before Charles grabbed his gun. Right at that moment, Carol's stepfather came in with a claw hammer and Charles shot him in the head. Velda allegedly came at him with a knife and Charles shot her in the face. She still tried to get up, reaching for Betty Jean, when Charles rammed the butt of the rifle into her head a couple of times. He then hit the two-year-old with the butt of the rifle. Charles recounted, I picked up that knife that the old lady had, started to walk in the bedroom, and the little girl kept yelling, and I told her to shut up. I started to walk again, and just turned around and threw the kitchen knife I had at her. They said it hit her in the throat, but I thought it hit her in the chest. I went on into the bedroom. Mr. Bartlett was moving around, so I tried to stab him in the throat, but the knife wouldn't go in. I just hit the top part of it with my hand, and then it went in. After these events, Velda's body was dragged to the old outhouse and shoved down the toilet opening. Betty Jean was also taken to the outhouse, but she was placed inside a box that was used for garbage. Then Marion's body was dumped on the floor of the chicken coop. Once the victim's bodies were hidden, Charles claimed that he and Carol cleaned up the crime scene inside the house and spent the rest of the evening eating potato chips and drinking Pepsi. They stayed in the house for almost a week, buying milk and bread on credit every day. Numerous people would stop by the house, but were turned away with a sign on the front door stating, Stay away. Everybody is sick with the flu. But that didn't stop everyone. Marion Bartlett's boss came to the door one day, curious to see just how sick he really was. Carol came out and told him that her father was bedridden with the illness. Then Carol's sister Barbara came by with her husband, Bob Von Bush, and Carol allegedly told him, told them both, the same story about the flu. Both were highly suspicious of Carol's claims. So Bob came back with his brother to investigate. Carol told them in tears, Please don't try to get in. Mom's life will be in your hands if you do. The brothers would go to the police to find the answers they wanted. When the police showed up, Carol told them that the family had the flu. 
They asked her why her brother-in-law would call the police if the family just had the flu. Whatever she told the officers, they felt the young girl was sincere and not in any danger, so they left without any suspicion. They later told Bob that there was no reason for alarm. But Bob and Barbara were still suspicious and had one of Carol's close friends go to the house. This time, a new story was heard. In a low whisper, Carol told her friend, Some guy is back there with Chuck. He has a Tommy gun. I think they're going to rob a bank. This friend did not tell Barbara and Bob about it, but went home to tell her father, who called the police. Soon, Carol's grandmother came over. Knowing that the flu story was not going to cut it, she decided to go along with one of her other stories. She reportedly told her grandmother, Go home, Grandma. Oh, Granny, go away. Mommy's life is in danger if you don't. But Grandma got mad and told her granddaughter angrily, If you don't open this door this second, I'm going to go to town and get a search warrant. You've got Chuck in there with you, and don't tell me you don't. Carol still refused to let her grandma inside. So, grandma went to the police. At her insistence, the officers searched the house, but they didn't check too thoroughly. In the house, they saw it was empty, and nothing raised suspicion. Still, Bob von Busch was not having it and demanded authorities thoroughly search the entire property. Officers refused his request. Charles's father even went to the police, wanting them to pick up his son for questioning. But his request was also denied. That's when Bob took matters into his own hands. With the help of his brother, they searched the Bartlett's home and property where their fears were confirmed. This time, their pleas to authorities were taken seriously. And an alert was issued for Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate to be brought in. Charles and Carol needed to skip town, as there were just too many people coming by the home, causing alarm. But this would also prove to be an obstacle, as the vehicle needed new tires. He tried to mend the worst one before leaving, but the repair did not hold. They were able to stay with a 72-year-old family friend of the Starkweathers named August Meyer. The old bachelor had a farm about 20 miles outside of Lincoln where Charles used to hunt. As the couple went down the dirt road, Charles's car got stuck in the mud. Again, this is mostly taken from Charles Starkweather's accounts. And what truly happened remains a mystery as their stories were completely different. What is known for certain is that Charles shot August in the head. Charles claimed he killed August out of self-defense. Charles stated that August tried to shoot him, but his gun jammed, so Charles shot back. He also claimed that he wounded August's dog as the animal ran away. After this, Charles carried the body to a building on the property, covering it with a blanket. Then Carol and he went into August's home, ate his food, stole his money, took his guns, and went to sleep. The next day, 
One of August's neighbors helped Charles and Carol free the vehicle from the mud. They then took another road to August's farm. Charles would then check to make sure that August's body was still covered in the building. He soon became scared. The blanket he had covered his friend with was gone. Fearing that someone had discovered the body, the couple drove the vehicle down the dirt road, getting stuck yet again. So, they took the weapons from the car and left it where it was. Keeping their shotguns hidden, Charles and Carol then hitched a ride from 17-year-old Robert Jensen and his 16-year-old girlfriend, Carol King. Almost instantly, Charles had his shotgun pointed at Robert's neck, demanding money from the pair and making them drive back towards August's farm to an abandoned storm cellar. When they arrived, Charles shot Robert six times in the head. He reportedly tried to rape Carol, but was unable to do so. Becoming angry with her, he shot her in the head. Carol's body was left half-naked with her jeans and panties around her ankles, with stab wounds to her stomach and privates. Again, the stories of what actually happened differ. Charles claimed that he shot Robert and Carol Fugate mutilated and shot Carol King because Charles was sexually attracted to her. But Carol Fugate claimed she remained in the car the entire time while the crime took place. The teenagers' bodies were left in the storm cellar as Charles and Carol took off in Robert's car. The couple discussed going to Washington State to stay with Charles's brother. That was the plan. But for some reason, they drove back to Lincoln, their hometown where everyone knew them and everyone was looking for them. Not only was this an incredibly stupid thing to do on their part, but they also decided to drive past Carol's home because they wanted to see if the bodies had been discovered. It wasn't hard to figure out when they saw police cars parked around the entire property. The pair eventually decided they would drive to the most affluent section of town where they fell asleep in their stolen vehicle. The next day, Charles's car was found stuck in the mud at August Myers' farm. It did not take long for the bodies of August, Robert, and Carol King to be found. After these grim discoveries, a massive manhunt for Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate was underway. Without authorities knowing that their culprits were right under their very noses. Charles became well acquainted with the affluent part of town from his trash collection days. This is how he planned for his next victims. A 47-year-old man who was close friends with the governor and president of the Capitol Bridge and Capitol Steel Companies, C. Lauer Ward and his socially prominent wife, Clara. On the morning of January 28, 1958, Clara and their 51-year-old maid, Lillian, were home with their two dogs. Charles knocked at the front door while Carol remained in the car. When the maid answered, Charles pointed his gun at her and forced his way into the home. 
There are so many conflicting stories as to what actually occurred. I found stories where Charles forced Clara to make him pancakes and waffles, waiting on him hand and foot, while others stated he just barged into the home, killing the women and dogs instantly. But what is known is that the women were stabbed to death, and one of the dog's necks were broken because it would not stop barking. When he finished, Charles called his father, telling him to pass a message onto Bob Von Bush. He told him to tell Bob that he was going to kill him for interfering with his relationship with Carol. After murdering the wealthy Clara Ward, he must have known that his reign would be coming to an end, as he then sat down to write a letter for the law only. The note was an illiterate tirade, confession, and an attempt at justifying his actions. A snippet from this letter read, I and Carol are sorry for what has happened, because I have hurt everybody because of it, and so has Carol. But I'm saying one thing, everybody that came out there was lucky. They're not dead, even Carol's sister. While the killer couple were in the ward residence, the newspaper arrived. Charles was elated to see his picture on the front page, along with Carol and her dead family. At about 5.30 p.m., Lower Ward arrived home when Charles fatally shot him. Charles and Carol then ransacked the home, searching for valuables. Then they loaded up in Ward's black 1956 Packard, fleeing from Lincoln. The next day, Ward's cousin and business associate called the house throughout the morning because Lauer did not come into work. When it was noon, he decided to go over to the house and let himself in. The bodies of Lauer, Clara, and Lillian were then discovered. As Lauer was a close friend of the governor, he was immediately notified of the deaths. After hearing of the savage murders, the governor called the National Guard in for help finding the culprits. The city was sealed off as the National Guard roamed the streets. The FBI started an investigation and an aircraft was sent to look for the ward's stolen black Packard. Parents hurried to the schools to bring their children home, while the mayor offered a $1,000 reward. Again, their plan was to head to Washington, but for some reason, they ended up back at Carol's parents' home. However, they did not go inside because there was a car in the driveway and the house was lit up. For some reason, it was as if they thought they could just hide out in the house. Or maybe Carol or Charles wanted to grab something from the house. I don't know. But seeing as how they kept going back, it appears they wanted something from the house. Seeing as how it was not an option, the couple finally embarked on their journey toward Washington. They drove all night and were in Wyoming the next morning on January 29, 1958. They searched for a car to steal along the way, when they finally spotted one with a person sleeping inside. A traveling shoe salesman from Montana named Merle Collison was sleeping in his Buick. Charles woke the unsuspecting man, telling him they were going to swap vehicles. 
Whatever the man said or didn't say caused Charles to shoot him numerous times in the head, neck, arm, and leg. Collison was dead in the front passenger seat. Carol sat in the back with Charles in the driver's seat. He started the car but could not figure out how to release the emergency brake. A passerby noticed the vehicle and stopped, figuring that they were having car trouble. When the Good Samaritan approached the vehicle, Charles pointed his gun at him and demanded, Raise your hands. Help me release the emergency brake or I'll kill you. The helpful man then noticed the dead body slumped in the passenger seat. But luck would have it that a Wyoming deputy sheriff stopped. Carol noticed the officer and immediately jumped out of the car, running to Deputy Romer screaming, Take me to the police! After assuring her that he was a deputy sheriff, Carol pointed at the car and cried, He's killed a man! While Carol was seeking help from the officer, Charles ran back to the stolen Packard and drove toward the town of Douglas. Deputy Romer ordered a roadblock and began pursuing Charles. A Douglas police chief and sheriff received the call from Romer when Charles raced past them at a speed exceeding 100 miles per hour. The sheriff shot out the back window of the Packard when Charles suddenly came to a stop in the middle of the highway. He thought he had been shot when the back glass shattered and cut his ear. The sheriff and police chief pulled up beside the vehicle and waited cautiously for Charles Starkweather to get out. He was ordered to put up his hands, but he didn't. So the chief shot at the ground near his feet and ordered him to lie on the ground. Charles reached in back of his pants to tuck in his shirt tail, causing authorities to think he was reaching for a weapon. Another shot was fired near Charles. Finally taking the hint, he lay down and did as he was told. Needless to say, when authorities heard he stopped because he thought he was bleeding to death, they were disgusted with him. Charles believed that if he were to be tried in Wyoming for the murder of Merle, then he would die in a gas chamber, but in Nebraska, he would be sent to the electric chair. As neither option sounds too appealing, he chose to go to Nebraska. But in reality, if he were to have stayed in Wyoming, he would have been serving a life sentence because the governor of Wyoming was against the death penalty. He and Carol were extradited back to Nebraska at the end of January 1958. Charles was obviously thrown under the bus for the murders while Carol maintained she was innocent. She claimed to be a hostage of his throughout the entire spree. No one truly knows her culpability in the crimes. When Charles was being interrogated, he initially stated that he committed all the murders, but he would change his story to say that Carol committed some of them. From Carol's story, she stated that her and Charles were broken up when she found him in her home on January 21st. She stated that she had told him numerous times to leave her alone, but he kept chasing after her. On the day her family was murdered, she claimed she came home from school to find Charles holding her at gunpoint. He told her that her family was being held by a few of his gang members, and if she did not do what he said, then he would call these friends to kill her family. But 
therein lies the problem. She admitted to authorities that she had been with Charles of all of the Nebraska murders. And when they were at the Wards' residence, when the newspaper arrived, their picture had been cut out and found in their possession, leading many to believe that she knew her family was dead the entire time. Both Charles and Carol were charged with first-degree murder and murder while committing a robbery. The couple were tried as adults and faced being sent to the electric chair. On May 5, 1958, Charles Starkweather's trial began and he did absolutely nothing to help in his defense. His lawyers were desperately trying to put together an insanity defense, but Charles maintained that he was sane. He did not want to be seen as insane. Apparently, in his eyes, it was worse to be seen as insane rather than a cold-blooded killer. When Charles was first captured, the first words he told authorities in Douglas, Wyoming were, Don't be rough on the girl. She didn't have a thing to do with it. But as time passed, he came to the realization that Carol was trying to set herself up as an unwilling hostage instead of his girlfriend. This is when his story changed and he began implicating her in the crimes. He even stated, She could have escaped at any time she wanted. I left her alone lots of times. Sometimes when I would go in and get hamburgers, she would be sitting in the car with all of the guns. There would have been nothing to stop her from running away. After an exceedingly emotional plea from his lawyer, the jury made its decision within 24 hours. They found him guilty on both counts of first-degree murder, with the jury asking for the death penalty. Their request was granted, and he was executed by the electric chair on June 25, 1959. He did not give any last words, and reportedly was indifferent about his fate. While still imprisoned, Charles allegedly wrote a letter to his father stating that he was not sorry for what he did, because for the first time, him and Carol were having fun. Carol's defense was built around her being held hostage. But the jury was not convinced of her innocence and found her guilty of murder on November 28, 1958. However, she did not receive the same sentence because she was only a 14-year-old girl. Instead, she received a life sentence and was sent to the Nebraska Center for Women. Carol was considered to be a model prisoner while locked up, and after serving 18 years, she was paroled on June 20th, 1976 from York Women's Reformatory. After being paroled, she lived in Lansing, Michigan for a while and worked as a janitorial assistant in nanny. She even took a polygraph test on live television to prove that she was not a willing accomplice in the murders, and she passed it. She would go on to marry Frederick Clare in 2007, who worked as a weather observer for the National Weather Service. Unfortunately, on August 5th, 2013, the couple was in a single vehicle accident, where Carol was seriously injured and her husband died. Carol attempted to receive a pardon for the crimes she was found guilty of. Her application was supported by relatives of the murder victims as she maintained her innocence. Her request for a pardon was to alleviate the burden of being known as a convicted killer. In February 2020, 
Carol was denied a pardon by the Nebraska Board of Pardons, stating that the role of a pardon is to restore a felon's rights and because her request was too broad for the parole board. At the time of this episode, Carol Fugate is still alive and is 80 years old today. The murder spree of Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate has been the inspiration for many creative works in the media. Numerous books, television shows, movies, video games, and songs have been credited by their slayings. And so it appears the hopeless nobody from Nebraska lives in infamy for one of the worst and most notorious crimes in history. What did you think of today's episode? Do you think Carol was an innocent hostage of Charles Starkweather or a willing accomplice? Do you think she will ever receive a pardon? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. And don't forget to like and follow for more episodes. Thank you for listening and your support. Stay safe and I will see you for the next episode. Bye.